been thinking lately, um, this is a dangerous book, the Bible. I mean, it's, it's huge. If you read it all the way through, it's probably the biggest book you will ever read in your life. It's full of stuff that's hard to understand. It was written in cultures and languages that are very different from our own. And I think one of the dangers that we have with the Bible is the danger of taking parts of it out of context. I can't tell you how many times I've had to say to someone, well, wait, wait just a minute, that's not, that's not what that means. I mean, look at what happened in the chapter just before this. Or to say, you know, you, think about who Jesus was talking to when he said that. We need sometimes to be able to step back or, as our series is entitled, to zoom out, to get a larger context in order to understand specific things within the Bible. So, as you know, if you've been around these last few weeks, we are covering the entire Bible, yes, folks, the entire Bible, in six weeks. Where else are you going to find that? <laughs> six weeks you're going through the Bible. So what we have done is we've divided the entire Bible up into six segments. And I think they're on the, on the screen here. So we start with creation and then the fall, uh, God's chosen people, Jesus, the church, and finally God's new creation. And these differ a lot in length, but the important thing is, is that each segment contains a, an important part of what God has been doing or will be doing in the world and as if that weren't confusing enough, we're actually not even taking them in order. So, yeah, so today we're looking at that second segment, which is called the fall. It's one of the shorter segments that we're looking at, just, uh, just nine chapters, Genesis 3 through 11. But I think Genesis chapter 3 particularly, which is the story of the fall, is so crucial for us to understand. If we don't get that, the rest of the Bible isn't going to make much sense. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin by reading through that entire third chapter of Genesis, and then we're going to go back and talk about it. So if you've got your Bible, you might want to turn to Genesis chapter 3. I think the words will be here on the screen as well. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Oh, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, I mean, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. If you looked at the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis, and we've talked about those in here, it's a beautiful account of God's creating the, the, the world and everything in it, including Adam and Eve. And if there were a theme, maybe for those first couple chapters, it would be, it is good. You know, God looks at what he has made and says, you know, yeah, that's good. That's good. But when we come to chapter 3, we find that evil has entered into the picture. Adam and Eve have been placed by God in an incredibly wonderful, perfect environment called the Garden of Eden. They were there able to live in a perfect relationship with the Lord God. I meet with the sixth graders every year in our Sunday school program, and they give me questions about the Bible to ask. And one of the, one of the questions they asked this last time was whether or not I believed that Adam and Eve lived, you know, like a thousand years. And my answer to that question would be, yeah, I really do believe that those first generations of people lived long, long lives. I mean, imagine what it would be like living in a, a world where the water was clean and there was no pollution in the air and no mutations in our genes that affected our DNA, you know. I think they might have lived long, long lives. God puts Adam and Eve in this garden, in this perfect environment, and then God does what I believe was a gracious thing. God gives Adam and Eve a way by which they might express their love and gratitude to God, not just through words, but through their actions. 
God gives Adam and Eve free choice and he, he presents to them a way that they can submit to his authority and live life under his rule. He says, that tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat the fruit from that tree. Now, I think there was nothing special about that tree. I think it was just a fruit tree there in the garden. I think God could just have easily have said, okay, this big rock right here, don't sit on the rock. And every time you don't sit on the rock, you'll be saying, I love you, Lord, and I trust you, and I submit to your authority in my life. Don't eat from the tree. That's it. Every time you don't eat from it, it'll be a way for you to express to me your love and your gratitude. But what happens? We find in the third chapter now that, that evil has entered the garden, and it's described as a snake or a serpent that comes in to tempt Eve. So maybe the, the question we need to ask ourselves is, you know, who is or what is this snake that appears in the Garden of, of Eden? And fortunately, the Bible gives us an answer to that question. If we go from the beginning of the Bible way to the end of the Bible, to the last book, to the book of Revelation, God identifies who this serpent is. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says this. Now remember, this is, this is Jesus' disciple John late in his life. He's been given a, a vision of what's going to happen at the end of human history. And here's part of what he saw. He said, the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. If you go a few chapters farther in Revelation in chapter 20, it describes it this way. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. God identifies the serpent. In fact, that snake maybe is a title as much as a description. It is Satan himself. Satan has entered into the Garden of Eden in order to tempt Eve and Adam. So maybe the next question we need to ask then, okay, if, if that is Satan, who is Satan? And so that's the next question we need to figure out. And I'm going to make some assumptions kind of based on some sort of unclear passages of Scripture. Let's, let's back up for just a minute. You know we live in a, in a world, in a universe, when there's a whole lot of stuff going on that we can't experience, that we can't see or feel or touch. 80%, up to 80% of the entire universe, scientists tell us, is composed of black matter, dark matter, or dark energy that we didn't even know until this generation that it even existed. Imagine 80% of the universe we didn't even know was there. We can't see it. We can't experience it. On a cosmic scale, there's all this stuff going on you know, that we don't even know about. Or you go down to a subatomic level. You think about something like neutrinos, these incredibly, infinitely small little massless particles. I read, and this is, I almost can't believe it's true, that every second, 65 billion neutrinos pass through every inch of the earth. That means right now, through every inch of you, 65 billion neutrinos are streaming through you. Can you feel them? You can't, can you? 
I mean, they're there, they're real, they're a part of our life, but we can't, we can't experience them. You know, we can't see them, we can't feel them. In the same way, I believe that God has created a, a universe, a level of existence that is different from the material world in which we live. It's a spiritual world. And God has created and populated this spiritual world with spiritual beings. Remember, God himself is a spirit. And the Bible sometimes sort of identifies and describes a little bit what some of these spiritual beings are like. Seraphim or cherubim, you know, described as having lots of wings and eyes and just incredible descriptions of what some of these spiritual beings are like. And the, and the spiritual beings with which we are probably most familiar are angels, right? We're pretty well aware of what angels are. And God says that when he created angels and archangels, because there seem to be levels of authority within the angels, that right at the top of that, that pyramid of angelic beings, there was one angel above all others. His name was Lucifer. And we hear the name Lucifer, and it sounds, you know, scary and, and repugnant, you know, because we associate it with something evil. Ah, but Lucifer was amazing. He was glorious, shining and bright and intelligent and powerful. And if we saw him, we would fall down to the ground in awe, blinded by his beauty and his majesty. The highest angel. But Lucifer chose to rebel against God. There's a passage in Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah is speaking, I think, in terms of something that was going on during Isaiah's lifetime at the time it was being written. But I think most biblical scholars would say that passage also refers to Lucifer and to Satan. And I want to read you what Isaiah wrote. Now, as I read this, think about this in terms of how it might be describing Lucifer. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star. Son of the dawn, you've been cast down to the earth. You have, you who once, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the uttermost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead to the depths of the pit. And so this incredible, amazing, spiritual, angelic being rebels against God. He is cast out of heaven, and he becomes Satan, or the devil. And those angels that rebelled against him and were also cast out of heaven are called demons. And they are at work in the world today. And the same kinds of lies and falsehoods and damage that Satan tried to do to God's children, Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan is trying to do in our world today as well. Again, let me read you a couple passages of Scripture. This is written by Jesus' disciple John. He says in 1 John chapter 3, he says, The one who, um, who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of Man, Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus, in talking to some people who were opposing his ministry, said this, You belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's decrees. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so this liar speaking his native language, which is deceit and falsehood, begins this conversation with Eve, and he begins to tell, ask questions and to tell half lies and falsehoods. And even though in Genesis chapter 3 it just covers a couple verses, my gut feeling is that maybe this dialogue between Eve and Satan took place over a long period of time, several days, several months, maybe even several years that Satan keeps coming into the garden, planting doubt in Eve's heart until finally she looks at that tree and the fruit is beautiful and she knows it must taste good. And besides that, it would make her like God. And so she takes the fruit and she eats it and she gives it to her husband Adam and he eats it as well. And suddenly everything changes and that beautiful relationship between God and his children is broken. And that love relationship now becomes one of fear and guilt and shame. And God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And where are Adam and Eve? They're hiding from God. That one relationship, which was the most important thing in their lives until that moment, suddenly now is a cause of fear. And they take fig leaves and they fasten them together and they try to cover their nakedness and they hide from the presence of God. How far this has gone. How far from God they have fallen. You see, there is one basic lie that Satan tells. It was a lie that Satan believed. It was a lie that he told to Adam and Eve and they believed and it is a lie that God, that Satan presents to us today. And the lie is this that the create, creation, the creature, can be like the creator, that we can be like God. And when you think about it, every time we sin, what we have really done is put ourselves in place of God. God gives us his law. God tells us what is good and wise and the right way to live. And every time we doubt that, we put ourselves above God so that we can look down and we can judge what God has said. We can decide whether God is right. We can decide whether what God has said is really going to make me happy. We can decide if that's the way we want to live or not. We put ourselves in place of God. It's what Satan tried to do. It's what Eve tried to do when she ate the fruit because she wanted to be like God. And it's what we do every time we violate God's law and put ourselves in the place of the Creator rather than our rightful place as the, as the creature. We don't have time to go into this very deeply, but I want to say something very bluntly. You can never say, the devil made me do it. You can never say, I had to sin. You can never say that the temptation was so strong, I just had to give in. James writes this in this little letter that he has in the New Testament. It's in James 4, 7. 
He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In that relationship with God, when we're submitting to God, we have the strength to overcome the temptation. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 13, one of the most practical, important verses in the Bible. Write it down in your notes. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Did you get that? We feel sometimes like nobody has ever been tempted the way I have. Nobody's been in my circumstance quite like this. And we want to excuse our sin. God says, no, you know, sin is common to people. Temptations are common to people. You're facing the same thing that countless people have faced before. We can never say that temptation was so strong, I simply could not resist it. That's wrong. God says you can always resist it, that every time temptation comes, that God will always provide a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you need to write it out, put it on your mirror or stick it in your Bible or memorize it because it's a key to fighting against the temptations of Satan when they come. Adam and Eve give in to the temptation. God comes and he pronounces judgment on them. To the woman, he says, I'm, I will increase your pain in childbearing. And in fact, I think maybe it's also saying, I will increase the amount of childbearing. Remember, until this point, there was no death. Adam and Eve would have lived forever, so generations would not have had to have a lot of children, right, if they're all continuing to live. I will increase the pain in childbearing. You, know. you will be subject to your husband, and he'll have authority over you. To Adam, he says, the world is never going to be the same. For you to rebel against the authority of the Almighty God is so catastrophic that the whole earth has changed. Now the very soil will no longer just, you know, bring forth fruit for you. But by the sweat of your brow will you work because it will bring forth thorns and thistles, dandelions and crabgrass. That's not in there, but it's that idea. You know, there's going to be a lot of stuff there that you don't want, and it's going to be hard for you out there, Adam. And God tells Adam and Eve they need to leave the Garden of Eden. And he places a cherubim there with a flaming sword to keep them out. And what do we learn about God in this story? I mean, it seems like we're learning that God is a God of judgment, that God is always opposed to evil. We learn that there are always consequences to evil and sin. But I think maybe we learned something else about God that maybe is easy to miss. And let me see if I can explain it to you. One way to read this story is to look at God as this angry, wrathful God judging sin. I sort of picture him like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, you know, Ian McClellan with that big, deep voice of his, you know, you shall not pass, you know, Gandalf says. And I picture God like that, Adam. What have you done? Cursed is the ground because of you. Out, you cannot be here anymore in this angry God. But what if we're misreading it? You know, what if a better way to understand this story would be to see God as brokenhearted? These two children that he's made that he loves and cares for. What if when, when 
Adam, when God comes into the, the garden and he already knows what Adam and Eve has done and he knows where they are, what if God is saying, oh, Adam, what have you done? I mean, this changes everything. What if God is not saying, you know, I'm going to curse you. God is saying there are consequences to sin. It's not going to be the same anymore. Our relationship is not going to be the same anymore. In fact, you and Eve can't even stay here in the garden. You're going to have to leave. What if what's being pictured in Genesis chapter 3 is the story of a God of such deep love that his heart is broken when his relationship with his children is broken? Now, why would, I, why would I say that? Are there some hints to that in this chapter? And I think there are, two in particular. One of them comes when God is cursing Satan. And one of the things he says to Satan is really important. This is in the 15th chapter of Genesis 3. God is speaking to Satan. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The offspring of woman... Who is it who's born of a woman, of a virgin? You know, it's Jesus Christ. Who is it who is bruised by Satan? That's what that word there means. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, in describing Jesus, when he comes, says, you know, he was bruised, that same word, he was bruised for our iniquities. Who was it who would come and be injured by Satan, but ultimately would crush Satan's head, as, as God says will happen here? It was Jesus Christ. And right from the moment of the first sin, God is already implementing a plan by which his children might come back to the garden. And there's a sense in which the rest of the Bible is really the, the telling of how God brings about the fulfillment of that promise that he made back to Adam and Eve. I will send one. And ultimately, he will crush the head of Satan. That's one clue. And then there's another one, and it's so easy to overlook this. And this is, this is the 21st chapter of Genesis 3. It says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So here's Adam and Eve. They've fastened together some fig leaves to cover their nakedness, and they're going out from the garden, and life is never going to be the same. And this broken-hearted God who loves them so much and says, You've got to leave. You've got to go now. And then he says this. He says, oh, come here. I mean, you're not going to survive out there like that. It's going to be rough out there. And what does God do? God kills an innocent animal. He sheds the blood of an innocent animal to make clothes for Adam and Eve, to cover their shame and their nakedness through the sacrifice of this animal. What is that a picture of? Isn't that a picture of what God did in Jesus? That the innocent lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, was slain so that we might be covered, our sinfulness, by the blood of Jesus Christ? This God who is brokenhearted, even as Adam and Eve are sinning against him, is providing for them. There's, there's a picture that I love. It'll be here on the screen. It's called Forgiven. What do you see when you look at that picture? Here's what I see. I see Jesus standing before Pilate, and Pilate is saying, listen, I've got all authority. I could put you to death, or I can let you live. And Jesus says, you don't understand. You know, 
The only authority is what's been given you by God. I have my heavenly Father. If I wanted to, I could call down thousands and thousands of angels that they would come and rescue me. Who is giving Pilate the strength, the voice to be able to say, crucify him? Who gave him the life to be able to sentence Jesus Christ to death? Who gave him that? Jesus did. And when Jesus is thrown down on the ground and his arms are outstretched and that Roman soldier places that spike in his hand, who gave that soldier the strength in his arm to pick up that mallet to drive the spike through the hands of Jesus? Who gave him that strength? Jesus did. Jesus did. And every time you rebel against God, put yourself in his place and disregard his word and break his commandments who is it that gives you the life and the freedom to be able to do that it's Jesus himself this broken hearted God looks at us in our sin and loves us and provides for us and says someday Someday you'll get to come back to the garden. Let's pray. Lord, am I, I confess for myself and for these friends that our lives are too filled with sin that we just sort of tolerate, that we think doesn't matter, that it's really not going to have any consequences when the reality is much different than that. And so we ask your forgiveness. We ask you would help us to see sin the way you see it as something that hurts us and hurts others and hurts our relationship with you. And I thank you for this amazing account of our first parents and that we can learn from it about our own lives and about, about you, Lord God. Thank you. Amen.